This is Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois. The podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. And now here's your host, Navy SEAL founder of Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, Rob Dubois. You've heard me talk at from Impact Actual about this concept of Lima 4, the, the four L's using phonetics. It's almost cliche to say live, learn, laugh, love. Live, learn, laugh, love, lead. You see them on the little hangings at all the stores, discounted because nobody wants to buy them, and people put on the wall with the wooden wooden burning or wood burning or whatever. But I reframed the terms live, learn, laugh, love to wrap around our body, mind, heart, soul framework because those four essential elements of a pe- of a person the superpowers of body mind heart and soul the physical mental emotional and spiritual ethical those are real things and you hear me talk about it a lot a lot of folks from the seal community are beginning to understand these things too uh, i sat down with brian losey admiral brian losey a few years ago who was warcom at the time the commander of all naval special warfare the boss of all the seals and we we're talking about how to hire the next the next phase of, of new seals. You know, how do we select guys that are not going to be as susceptible to emotional damage and trauma? Not that we can change a human's makeup, but to recognize that we have to communicate to the young seal candidates that you're human. Trauma is a human thing. It's not a combat veteran thing. It's not a car accident thing. It's trauma is what humans get when there's a traumatic event post-trauma is what happens when a person experiences trauma and and, and their experience afterward. So we were talking about the SEALs 2.0 or BUDS 2.0 for SEAL training. And so as you've heard on Beyond Your Limits before, we're always trying to push the boundaries of of connecting those boundaries, finding the seams between the body, the mind, the heart, and the soul. And I'll use one quick anecdote I often point to. If I have a really bad toothache, in other words, my body, my body is hurting, I'm going to be very distracted on this chemistry test. So my body and my mind will be directly influencing each other, and my chem test is going to be a bad score, and that bad score is going to affect my cum. Similarly, if I'm feeling awful about a bad breakup and my emotional or heart zone is, is wounded, I'm also going to suck on that chem test. These all touch each other. If my mind isn't thinking clearly because I'm distracted by all the other factors, I'm not going to be making, uh, I'm not going to be emotionally fully present and resilient issues we're talking about these days. So today, as we flow into flow, as we flow into this idea of, of connecting things, I'm excited to be talking about the physical, the body in a very mundane way with our guest who understands that portion of a human life from a, a licensed dietitian role, but also as I'm going to, I'm going to touch base here real quick on a little bit of bio, because I think this is very important. Um, we'll be talking about Gina Warfel. I'll spell that for you later. So you can get to her site, GinaWarfel.com. And in her first paragraph on the about me, it says about a decade ago, I was entering my career as a dietitian with the spark and enthusiasm to be the best dietitian I could and really change lives. I thought if I gave people a well-crafted meal plan, calorie limits, and tangible goals, they would see meaningful positive change. Unfortunately, they didn't. They kept falling into cycles of starting my program and then sabotaging a few days later. I could feel their frustration and disappointment. And I wanted to get that out there because it sounds like a kind of a sucky situation, but it's very informative. Very important for us to acknowledge the fact that there is no 
superpower, one body alone or mind alone or heart alone. And that's what led to Mastering Mindfulness, Gina's mm. program. Welcome to our program, Gina. Hey, thank you. So glad to be here and just flow and jam with you today. Do you like how I set you up with one of your most amazing failures that you're public about? Because that way we can talk about successes, right? What The, the critical thing on Beyond Your Limits is saying, yeah. okay, we all run into those walls. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I was going to be a rock star when I was in high school. Then I lost my hair. thought I was going to be a veterinarian, but I didn't like chem and bio, so I became a different kind of vet. You know, yeah. we assume these things in life. You assumed you'd just be, oh, let's go snap our fingers and suddenly people will be dietarily smart. But they came into problems. Yeah, and I think it's not even that it's just that we're faced with a challenge, but sometimes it's like these things that are our greatest struggle ends up being our greatest gifts. And it actually led me to a deep unfolding of learning more about myself and other people. And your, your mess can become your medicine. Yeah. And you, you literally, as you point that out there, you're outing yourself with that technically a professional failing. But then, as I said here also, your, your program is called Mastering Mindfulness. Well, that goes from the physiological to the, you know, your dietary dietitian stuff into the mind, which obviously mindfulness also touches on the heart, the emotional stability. So Mastering Mindfulness is all about far more than just what particular nutrient combinations you put down your neck, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think of mindfulness as taking a step out. Sometimes we're so deep into our own experience and just kind of taking a step, almost like a bird, like getting this 360 view and looking at everything, all the things that make us human. So how our, yes, our physical bodies and our physical chemistry influences why what we do, why do we do what we do? But what most people don't realize is that there are other things like subconscious beliefs that are driving their food choices or what they do or sometimes it's a certain emotion that is propelling our decision making forward or certain patterns that we're stuck in and we think that we're just at the mercy of fate and we're like I don't know why I do what I do I don't know why I have I don't have enough willpower I know what I'm supposed to do I have all this health knowledge or I I know a good amount but for some reason I'm choosing to do something that is not in my best interest. And so mindfulness is really looking at all the things that make us a human being, why we do what we do, and getting to know them a lot more intimately. And, you know, it's become kind of a popular term. Of course, like anything, synergy, paradigm, paradigm shift. Stephen Covey stuff from Seven Habits of Highly Effective People when I was young, uh, back in the 90s, uh, was not so old anyway, back in the 90s. And we talked about these words that became cliche in the business world. Oh, synergize, let's facilitate, let's optimize, and all these things. But I like the fact that these words still have very real meaning and still are, I mean, whether you've heard it in too many business meetings or worse, corporate lectures where they C-suites like, let's motivate our people. Why? Because they want to get better profits because then they get better bonuses and the owners get better returns. And all that is is, is why it sounds like BS because it is BS. There's not coming <laughs> from a place of authenticity when they want people to say, yeah, let's synergize. Synergy is amazing. That's what you're describing. Synergy across the aspects of body, mind, heart, and soul, as we describe it. It's it's synergy is a beautiful, real thing, as is mindfulness, even though it's again been used a lot by a lot of inauthentic people yeah. who are making a buck to throw it out there and sell this product called mindfulness. But at the at the authentic level, it's real. We we mean what we say when we talk about mindfulness, and you're talking about it in a way that enhances life. Yeah, absolutely. I think it mindfulness 
is what creates self-trust. It creates awareness. It We move out of this place of autopilot and being in an automatic where we're driven and controlled by our subconscious mind or our environment or our chemistry or whatever is going on in our experience. And we go from this being like almost on autopilot, being controlled, asking why is this happening to me and why can't I do it to a deeper understanding and deeper levels of like self-compassion for our experience. It's beautiful. So no longer, as you mentioned, autopilot and the victim mentality and why is this happening to me and this is somebody, it's like somebody else has your power. Mm-hmm. But we that's not what you or I believe. Yeah. We control ourselves and nothing else. And that's yeah. an important thing to keep in mind. I, I don't control other people's experiences of life. I control how I interact with them. Their experience is up to them. But I can be I can choose to do our forward philosophy on life. Don't be a dick. Don't make <laughs> it worse. Help you know, help the environment be healthier. Well, there's such a misconception around health too that like my greatest power will be if I follow this program and I have the most willpower and the most discipline and we're trying to force ourselves to do these external things and thinking that that's our power. But really, if you are counting calories or you're making yourself just follow someone else's rules, it's really disempowering. What you're saying to yourself is, Don't trust this incredible intelligence that has been built in your body. Do not trust it. Suppress it. Disconnect from it. Go into your mind. Suppress your appetite. Fight your hunger. Do all these things to not trust your body and use someone else's plan that tells you that they know better than you do because you cannot be trusted. And it's a a really disempowering experience where mindfulness and that connection with your body creates your deepest power when you know why you're doing what you're doing and you can go into that deep place within yourself and and hear it and understand it that's where you access your power it's simon sinek's concept of start with why the Mm -hmm. why is so important again in other words becoming cliche in this world of self personal development but it's 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 used a lot because it's real if you understand why, you automatically it's like a it's like a tractor beam. It pulls you toward those goals instead of being repelled because you feel like you're, you know, compromising your you're rejecting the self, like you say. Which is, I think, what you talked about in what I shared there, your first paragraph of the, about me. Can you help us understand how you failed there? What that failure was about? What you know? What was the the learning process you got to, and that that guided to where we are? What we're talking about with mindfulness beyond just the nutrients. Yeah. Well, when I became a dietitian, I was so eager to help people. And we're all trying to, it seems like we're all trying to solve this, this question, right? Of what is, what do I do? What is the best thing to do? There's so much information out there. What is the best way to eat? And most of us are just looking for answers. And that's where I was. And I just wanted the answers and I wanted to share it with people. And so I got my undergrad in dietetics and they taught me all about the body and how the body works. And it was so fascinating but the way that they taught us how to help people was to give them calorie-based plans. You know, give them this 1,300-calorie plan. You calculate how many nutrients that their body needs. You send them on your way. You change their lives. And so I opened up a private practice, and my clients were really struggling. And they were like, man, this is, this is really hard. And they were on it, and they were off of it. They lost a pound. They gained a pound. And I might have a client for like a year, and they weren't really making meaningful progress. And I was like, hmm, this is interesting. So I actually continued with school. I was like, there must be more answers here. So I went and got my master's degree. And it was kind of deeper levels of the same thing. And uh, so I'm like, okay, I'm sure I can do this too, right? And so I gave myself my own plans that were 
based in science. It was, you know, building goals so that it wasn't overwhelming. It was all the things that they taught us. And I started to feel more and more out of my power. And I felt like I was starting to try to force these plans and these rules. But there was something that felt like resistance inside of my body. And it was almost like um, I was putting on my daily war paint. I was really trying to build motivation, you know, come on, you can do this. And I was like, come on, you can fast, you can do this, you can eat these foods, don't eat these foods. And I was trying to be my cheerleader for my clients to do the same thing. And we were all failing miserably. And I I stayed in really good shape for a while, but I started to slip and slip and slip away from my body and the control that I had. And so it really was a big moment for me because I was like, if I can't do this, if my clients can't do this, what is it with being a dietitian? Like, is this a scam? Is, is my career a scam? Am I like right. any other fad diet? Because it wasn't actually making a long-term impact. And so I actually went through a really difficult period of feeling a lot of shame around my own inability to feel like I had this very natural, abundant, easy health that I feel like is possible, but I couldn't do it. It felt hard. And so I really went deep into my own journey of exploration of why is my body doing what it's doing? Why is dieting feel hard? Why is there sometimes resistance or we self-sabotage? Like what is really going on? And I actually started to learn the science of how our body's chemistry begins to shift when we diet. Why focusing on calories is just setting ourselves up for self-sabotage. And what happens in our body's chemistry that makes us and drives us to eat certain food choices that almost feels out of our control or like someone controlled us and made us do it. And that unfolded such a deeper exploration of empowerment. And I started to actually rewire my relationship to my food and my health from an inside out place. And now I'm in a place where health does feel effortless. I feel like I don't think about food all day. I don't self-sabotage. I don't have cheat days. I'm not on something and off something. It's just I feel more in flow with my body than I ever have, and I teach my clients how to do that too. And it's just the easiest way to go about it, and I never thought it would be possible, but it's a very different way of approaching health. Instead of forcing something externally onto you, and then there's resistance and friction, it's changing from the inside out. When I wrap up with a coaching client like I've done twice today already, happen to have two scheduled today before this call, I often offer them homework. And I specifically say, adamantly say, this is not my task to you. This is my recommendation. Mm. My homework to you, homework with air quotes, is my recommendation that you assign this to yourself. Mm, I like that. I say, hey, if you want it, you got it. And I say, do you do that? And of course, there's the social proof or the, if you will, the the peer pressure. There's a position of authority, right? This is my coach. I got to do what he wants. I got to people please, right? I'm saying, oh, no, we're not people pleasers. We're doing what we believe is right for us and nothing more and nothing less. So does this make sense to you, this recommendation I make about reading that book or checking out that resource or writing this list of things about what your whole life would look like? And that person takes the time, masters mindfulness in that in that blip of life, and says, huh, yeah, that does make sense to me. 
And then I say, okay, given that you've thought it through and given you, you've, you've acknowledged it to yourself, because if the answer is no, say so. I want to hear that. I want to hear no. It doesn't make sense to me. I'll say, thank you for being honest. I love that. But when they say they, they think it makes sense, I say, will you assign this to yourself? And then, so in public, if between the two of us in a confidential conversation, they say, yes, I will. This is mine. And I write it down in my little note. And I got my little notes and I'll make sure that I'll, be, I'll come back to it and say, did you do the homework you assigned to yourself? Back to autonomy, because we hear about things like, you know, my kids grew up in the generation of Ritalin. Now, Ritalin's not off the market, but it was all the rage in the 90s and, and OOs. And Ritalin led to, you know, understanding ADHD in a sort of pop culture way. And every parent was asking every psychiatrist, hey, we need Ritalin. Sounds like my kid. You know, it was just, it was misapplied. It was extensively, overextensively used. ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, was also a big diagnosis in that time frame. I mean, really, really, there's a lot to be disputed, and people are saying, no, it was, it was boys being boys, quite literally, physiologically, and six-year-old boys can't sit still and listen, and, and you're giving them medication to make them unnatural. As, again, I'm not, I'm not opening that conversation here, but, I'll, but uh, you probably have some strong opinions on it. <laughs> but the idea is that ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, is what we all have when we are externally tasked, even if we were complicit. Yep. Like when I go to my dietician, and, and she says... Okay, you have to cut back your cholesterol to this, your intake of fats, or whatever the whatever the, <laughs> right, the nutrient right, may be. Right. And I say, fine, I'll do that. And I write it down. I go home and I defy that authority because mm-hmm. I don't want to be told what to eat. Exactly. Even though I was in the on the conversation, I discussed it. I said, okay, fine, I'll do that. Then that's, that's what you're yeah. talking about, right? People had these invisible restrictions or ob- obstructions. Yeah, and I, I think what we all really want is to feel like we are in our power. And so sometimes we actually deeply want to get healthier, but when we wonder why do we rebel it? And usually rebellion comes from this need to feel powerful. So whether you're rebelling against your trainer or your nutritionist or whoever it is, or even just yourself, you're like, oh, I should do this diet because society tells me to, but there's this inner whisper in you that wants to rebel. You're going to rebel. That inner teenager is going to come out of you. And that was something I really noticed was that the more that I was like, you should really do this, you know, encouraging my clients. And it was like we were playing this tug of war and they're like, they want it and they're paying me for it. But they're also pulling back to maintain their feeling of being in their power until I can just fully let go. And if you can help them understand that is their power. Their power is to to do what's right for them. Mm-hmm. You're just nudging them on the path. Here's some things I, I know from my experience and my expertise that will that will probably be beneficial to you, but you have to own it. Mm-hmm. If you don't own it, you'll never do it. We we know another thing Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey talked about in his in that book was uh knowing and comprehending. And he said, Yeah, a lot of smokers know that smoking cigarettes is bad for you. And that's been true for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I was a kid, every it seems like everybody smoked 50 years ago. Everybody was smoking. But they knew there were some warnings out there from the medical community, even though the cigarette companies were still getting away with saying it's awesome and very healthy for you. You're going to be really sexy if you smoke this. And what's what's healthier than sexy, right? So that, well, that was a scam, hugely. Yeah. Well, you want to hear what's, what is what is effective at getting people to quit smoking? It's not scaring them with health. It's not scaring them with black-looking lungs. And the same thing with food is that a health diagnosis typically isn't what scares people into making the change, but it's actually digging deeper to the source of what is it that they're truly craving. Mm-hmm. And I, 
a really great example of this was um, whether we're talking about food or we're talking about cigarettes. Uh, in one of my workshops, this woman was like, I'm trying so hard to quit smoking and I just can't stop smoking. What would you suggest? And I'm like, well, tell me about that. Tell me about when you're smoking. What do you get from smoking? And tell me about that moment when you get to go have a cigarette. And she's like, oh, oh my gosh. I get to step outside. Everyone leaves me alone. I get five minutes of quiet to myself. No one asks me for anything. Nobody comes to get me. And they know that that's my time. And I'm like, okay, so what is it that you're really craving from this? She's like, I am craving peace and I don't get it anywhere in my life. And then she started focusing on actually creating boundaries to get peace in her life and the need for the cigarettes went away. So whether wow. it's food or a cigarette or whatever it is, what is it that you're really craving? And that will make the drive for whatever you're doing. Because there's a reason why we're placing value on eating the cookie or mm-hmm. or having the cigarette or whatever it is this vice is when we feel bad about it because we're like, oh, I, I, I want to be healthier. But there's actually a greater value that that thing is giving you than being healthy. Mm-hmm. And instead of shaming yourself for that, what if we gave ourselves permission to say, what is it that I'm actually getting from this? And how do I give that to myself? And then the the habit actually dissolves. Yeah. It's, 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 it's effortless. Like you talked about effortless health. It's effortless letting go of bad habits because you recognize what's, what it's feeding, to use a, a word. It's feeding or satisfying some need. Yeah. So I'm very curious about whether you've seen people who are foiling their own plans, creating obstacles to their own success health-wise, nutrition-wise, who are doing it in a way of punishing themselves or protecting themselves. I know that we've talked about, mm-hmm. you know, obesity is sometimes a protection from for somebody who was traumatized and is now wanting to be very unattractive. Yeah. For example. I think that we often see it through the lens is if obviously I don't love myself because if I loved myself, I wouldn't be eating this way or I wouldn't be doing this to my body or why would I overeat and feel awful and feel sick and make these choices that don't serve me? But the truth is we actually always are doing what's in our best interests. And what we're doing is actually just taking higher value over maybe the weight loss or looking good or feeling good. There's actually something that is deeper that is having your own back that needs to be looked at and seen before it can change. Or maybe at one point in time, it it did. It provided you safety. And I can tell you that every single time I go deep with someone and we unpack, Why is it that they have a behavior that they're not giving up, that they're doing something that they feel like is punishing or it's destructive? When we go a little bit deeper and I'm like, yeah, tell me about that. What is is it like in that moment when you do that destructive behavior? And they're like, man, I, I come home and I'm just, I've had such a hard day or my relationship is really suffering and I'm so overwhelmed and I feel so disconnected from my happiness. I haven't brought myself pleasure in a long time. Or I'm going through a divorce and I don't feel safe. I don't feel secure. And it always comes back to, yeah, sure, they want to get healthier, but it's actually creating some deeper level of security or safety that feels like safety. And so when we can have that, we start from a place of compassion and see, okay, this actually isn't really punishment. But now we can start to ask ourselves the question, Can we bring safety in other ways? Are there other ways you can create the feeling of safety in your body when you're going through this chaos or this really hard time? 
And then when we come from a feeling of safety from the inside out, again, that need to bring in food for safety kind of dissolves and goes away. There's a common understanding among psychologists about PTSD and about dysfunctional behaviors. And of course, that comes from other than PTSD. I'm not, I mean, from trauma. Yeah. I just happen to have a lot of familiarity with, familiarity with the, the PTSD world. Mm-hmm. And I was actually talking to my own therapist one time about this as I was working through a, a, a combat veterans PTSD discussion. And I said, I'm so sick of these dysfunctional behaviors. She said, you understand they weren't dysfunctional when you established them. Mm-hmm. They're I only love dysfunctional that. in the current context. And mm-hmm. I said, tell me more. <laughs> Sounds like that yeah. movie. I forget, tell me more. Would you, like, <laughs> would you like to be a full citizen of the United States of, of the world? Tell me more. So um, I'm, I'm quoting uh, uh, Starship Troopers there. So that, <laughs> <Miss> that <laughs> <she> said, <laughs> uh, I do media references like it's my job. I guess it is. So as she said, when a young person, for example, in the case of childhood trauma, mm-hmm. is perceives a threat of existential threat, like I stop existing, and that's in a place of dependency, a two-year-old, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, that person is being threatened or perceives a threat from the caregivers who are in those early years effectively God and goddess. When you look yeah. at the mother, father-mother pattern, they have the life and death power over the child because the child recognizes his dependence on that person. Right. And so to survive, one will, like I mentioned earlier, people-pleasing. And I tell people, we don't do that. I know this will not please you, but we don't people-please <laughs> because that hurts you. That hurts you. That hurts your your ability to interact with other people health in a healthy way. And it hurts your ability to give at your capacity. And again, it goes back in many cases to self-esteem, low self-worth. And, and this, these are all, again, all connected. There's this, there's this barrier that's very osmotic. As everything they, they cross over, like you're talking about with diet and mindfulness. Yeah. And so the, the, I realized it was functional. You know, things I did in the past were functional when I established them, and now they're not. And that's what you're talking about. If I eat the cookie, mm-hmm. then I feel like I'm in, in a way, and I hadn't thought of it until you said it, but it's a nurturing even though right. it's a smoking is is a destructive thing. Eating the extra cookies is destructive. Uh, eating a lot of garbage food is nurturing the self based on an internal, maybe unconscious pattern of what that yeah. person values. Absolutely. And I think when we can look at it from that through that lens, we can be more curious instead of shameful around our behaviors and we can start to trust in why our body is doing what it's doing and in that wisdom. And so maybe you are actually that food is providing a nurturing experience because of what you're going through right now. Or maybe it was all the way, just like you said, back from when you were seven years old and maybe you didn't have a safe household or maybe you actually did have a safe household, but your mom left for work and left you with a babysitter and you perceived that she was abandoning you and mm-hmm. you because you couldn't make sense of the world. Yeah. And now your nervous system is triggered and you're actually looking for something to create that grounding safety. And food is one of the ways that we can create safety. And so maybe it's actually feeling into that past experience that like that signature in our bodies it's telling us oh our nervous system actually needs to be soothed all the way back from when we were seven years old and when we go back and we can actually do that that current day need to find safety during those moments goes away you talked about this and i always like to go deep also when we can you mentioned um the, the if you will almost a superficial 
professional failure of 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 well it wasn't your failure i want to i want to emphasize as i see it it was the failure of the instruction you received in that earlier time you had perceived uh you know you got the lectures you got the textbooks you knew what dietitian work was for mm-hmm. those four years and they said here's what it is and you walked out there and applied it and said this isn't what it is it's not just calories in calories out that's basic science mm-hmm. we get it that's it's elementally part of it but in your practice it wasn't just calories and calories out there's so many more layers to deal with and and now you've learned the hard way the the long and winding road to understanding and how to truly help people even yeah. as you said even the graduate degree didn't tell you these ideas it just t- told you more of the same mechanics calories in calories out Absolutely. and this is how we serve each other you mentioned that person nurturing himself or herself and recognizing hey maybe there's another way to do this besides eating garbage food that's going to make me unhealthy and feel bad later requiring more nurturing um, we have an expression I use that I learned in my own recovery from addiction, which is be gentle with yourself. Mm-hmm. That compassion goes a long way. It really does. That compassion can be all of the medicine that, that, your, that your heart, soul, whatever you want to call it, is really craving. Just that gentleness and compassion and being willing to give yourself what you need instead of all of the shaming and bashing for not being perfect. So... What again? That goes back to self-punishing patterns. We talk in impact. We talk about self, uh, self-limiting beliefs and behaviors. That phrase, self-limiting beliefs and behaviors, points right to a lot of what we're talking about—the un, even unconscious beliefs, things that are patterns whereby I behave in certain ways. I'm hostile to other people. I'm aggressive. A lot of people who are fearful and and have an underlying insecurity are hostile a-holes. And we don't recognize it. We just see what it is. Like it, it's offensive against me. They're actively seeking to offend me. They're actively seeking to harm me or threaten me or be aggressive to me. Like get away from me and, you know, good morning, Bill. Get away from me. What's good about it, right? That person's in many ways suffering. In fact, the founder of Aikido talked about that. Uh, Osensei talked about the fact that he he established Aikido from his jiu-jitsu experience as an actual samurai warrior tradition guy who was very good at cutting people up and breaking bones because that was the way to fight. He evolved that into Aikido, which was protecting hmm. the the assailant and saying, how do I avoid injuring this man again? Because he's already, he's already injured in his heart and his mind. If he's attacking me for no good reason, that dude's messed up. How do I not compound that man's pain and suffering? I'll exhaust him. You know, he can come at me a thousand times. I'll just redirect, redirect him and send him over there and he, until he's like exhausted. And that's where the person often, if you will, has a come to Jesus moment with themselves and said, this isn't working. <laughs> Wiped out, uh, hitting bottom to use the addiction, addiction concept. So I wanted to ask you, you know, that was a professional, if you will, failing that the instruction you received. But can you tell us about your your own background a little bit about where you've wrestled with this we say, you know, coaches and therapists and counselors and physicians and ambulance drivers and certainly probably diet, some dietitians get in their profession what they didn't what they needed earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, for me, it when I was in high school, I was definitely influenced by diets and feeling that pressure to uh, you know, stay in shape and eat really healthy and be perfect. And it felt really intense. Um, But what I started to realize was I was able to hold on to control. 
until my life really rocked me. I had a really big life transition. Um, my sister and I, we had a we had a company together at that time. We had a business, and our relationship was really struggling. We we were young. We were like in our young twenties, and we had a we had a corporate wellness company at the same time. And our relationship was just really struggling. And so I decided to walk away from the business. All my money was tied up in the business. It was like I no longer had a business anymore. My clients were struggling and failing, my personal clients. And I was in a serious relationship and just kind of decided to just walk away from all of it. And it it actually really put me into like a really deep anxiety, kind of depression mix. And that's when I realized that like, there's so much more that influences our eating. And my body like went into this survival state. And so I realized that while I had been for many years my client's cheerleader and their motivator, um, it was so much more than that. And I was experiencing it myself. And when I, when I felt the body-numbing anxiety, I felt no motivation. I felt very disconnected from my hunger, my feelings. And it was interesting. I During that time, I actually lost a lot of weight. But then as I began to give myself permission to experience those feelings and open things up, it, w- it came with so much discomfort that I went the other way. And I felt like something was controlling me and controlling my food choices. And I remember having that feeling of like, why do I know so much? I had known so many facts about health, but yet it feels like something is driving me to make certain food choices. And it definitely came with a lot of shame around my my lack of self-control. And so my body was just being taken on this roller coaster, no matter how much I wanted to threaten myself with, oh, you're going to be unhealthy or you're going to look a certain way, or it didn't matter how much I threatened myself. There was something greater that was controlling my body and my choices. And I actually gave myself all these different plans. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to do a keto diet. Well, the more I kept restricting and restricting and restricting, the less I had that control. And so it really wasn't until I went into the the deepest, darkest places of everything that I was avoiding of what I was really uncomfortable with and seeing how I was so afraid of all of the anxiety or the sadness or the fear and all these things that I was labeling as bad and how much that was actually activating my nervous system. And what's interesting is when you activate your nervous system, maybe there's a bad feeling or a bad experience or PTSD comes up and there's something that is triggering your nervous system, it activates a completely different area of our brain. And I didn't know this at the time. So I felt a lot of shame around why I didn't have control over my food. Now I know that when we're calm and we feel safe, that's our prefrontal cortex working. Our prefrontal cortex allows us to have good willpower. It allows us to make rational decision-making like, hey, I want to get healthier, go eat the salad. If you ever notice when you feel like you're having a good day, you're positive, you're happy, whatever, it's super easy to have good willpower. But now all of a sudden you're in a triggered state or you're anxious or you're sad or you're frustrated or, or you're lonely or whatever it is that you're feeling that activates your nervous system that actually shuts down that area of your brain. It, it disconnects activity from that area and it lights up what's known as your amygdala, which is that fight or flight brain. Now, your amygdala's job is that it's sensing that there is possibly a threat to your survival, whether it's real or we're just stressed because we got a bill in the mail or whatever it is. 
but its job is to control all of your actions for survival. Not to look good, not to have long-term health, but right now, what does this human need to do to survive? So every time I was feeling this emotion or this uncomfortable experience and I allowed it to trigger my nervous system, my amygdala was getting this information that there's a threat to our survival. We need to control this human. So it actually feels like I'm being controlled and what I'm choosing to eat or how much I'm choosing to eat is being driven for survival. So that would mean carb foods, sugary foods, because that gives quick fuel and an an excessive amount of calories because that would be better for survival. Weight loss is not a good survival strategy. So my challenges were not understanding how that mechanism works. And that came with a lot of pain and a lot of shame and a lot of suffering, even though I had a lot of information. But it gave me the beautiful opportunity to go deeper into my body and learn how to communicate with it and work with it and create the safety and the calmness of no matter what is happening around me, no matter what feeling gets brought up, no matter what memory gets brought up, I can create safety and calm and connection in my body so that maybe I sometimes choose to eat the cookie, but I'm doing it from a place of connection and consciousness and awareness versus being controlled. And it really is controlling us, isn't it? This mm-hmm. under unseen belief system below the surface that's controlling us, or we can perceive it as controlling us. Obviously, it doesn't move my hand to grab the cookie, but it does make me feel like I, I like you said, uh, to survive, you got to load the calories. I might be without food for seven days uh, in this caveman survival lizard brain scenario. I better load up. Right. We have a, um, I'm reading, I'm listening to a book called Sapiens right now about the development of humankind, Homo sapiens. And I have just finished reading and devouring, pun intended, uh, Primal Blueprint from Mark Sisson about oh, cool. a lot of what makes humans and what we did before, uh, before um, you know, the 10,000 years ago or 12,000 years ago agricultural revolution where wheat and other things were just made abundant because it could feed the population. And a lot of, a lot, a lot of information that I, I value because I'm not a dietitian, so I'm learning it. And I take it with a grain of salt, another pun, uh, because I need to learn everything I can and then make my own best decisions based on what my information is available. But that one thing that Sison, uh, not Sison, but the, uh, the Sapiens book talks about is how we establish patterns of behavior today, like overeating sugary foods, because when Mrs. Cavewoman was walking through the Serengeti or the uh, another another area, when when she encountered a, a ripe fig tree, and there's all these figs, that was the only kind of sugars they could get was ripe fruits. That, you know, otherwise vegetables, tuber starches, and and meat were were not sweetie things. And so she saw that and said, "Oh." cool, I got to eat it before the monkeys get here and scour the tree and take all these potential calories because I'm surviving with it. But we don't need to eat 75 figs or two halves of (laughs) of a cake today to survive the saber-toothed tigers. Right. (laughs) So we're we're acting on behaviors that are unconscious because there's, again, I'm not saying that's the science for sure, but just paraphrasing. There's so many factors in play. Yeah, it's actually this amazing intelligence that once we respect it, we can work with it instead of being at war with it. Because if you are at war with your body's instincts and intelligence, 
you're gonna lose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe maybe you'll maybe you'll have a couple of wins, but yeah. long term, like you don't want to go head to head with your body's own instincts every day. I did it. A lot of my clients did it, and and especially if your body is in this state of survival because you're really busy, you're stressed, you're not dealing with your emotions, you have all this going on, and then you try cutting your calories. Guess what also triggers that survival state? Not having Mm -hmm. enough food. So if you ever wonder, oh man, why is it that I, as soon as I diet and I start eating better and I'm cutting my calories, I go and I overeat. You are triggering your body's survival mechanisms. We got to create some safety there. That's a really interesting idea. Of course, I understand what you're saying from a basic math way, basic, basic science. But if I associate my SEAL career as a diver, we have a air air deprivation or air starvation. Oxygen starvation is a terrifying experience. Mm. It doesn't matter if I'm a 20-year Navy SEAL careerist and I've been underwater for thousands of hours. The, the lizard brain says, uh-oh, I'm starving for air. Not just from like a long breath hold, but when you are actually trapped or your O2 is run out or your scuba is run out and you're kind of under a ship or something, then these unconscious panic experiences start to pop up. And we can use, you know, three – I guess the, I like the, the rule of, of three. So three minutes with no O2, three minutes with no water, H2O, and three minutes, three weeks with no food, you know, getting into serious starvation kind of thing. So there's bad – bad happens at each one of those threes approximately. And so oxygen starvation, that terror that rises, is uh, much more abrupt, much more immediate because you have, a, you know, seconds to count. In the terms of days uh, where you're starving over hours and days, then when the body feels deprivation of food, it starts to unconsciously panic. Just, but it's a low, it's a, a lower simmer, if you will. Another pun. I love my food puns. <laughs> you're I'm crushing it today. Ultimate dad. So you're putting your panic in a slow simmer, but it's still a panic like, oh, shit, we're running out of calories. I could die. I won't be strong enough to outrun the saber-toothed tiger. Exactly. Absolutely. Powerful idea. And once you know it, it makes sense. It's like, oh my gosh, of course I've been overeating when I've when I've been cutting my calories too low for a week because my body is receiving this information that, oh no, this human is stressed, this human's not getting enough food, which is why most people really struggle to permanently keep the weight off long term when they do, you know, extreme dieting. It's not in alignment with the genius of the body. Like you Mm-mm. said, there's an intelligence there and it knows what to do. It's opposite. We have, to, we have to be more mindful, which goes back to your quote about mindfulness creates self-trust. I love that. And back to the idea of, you know, be gentle with yourself. If we can do that, if every listener can do that and say, hmm, I can, okay, I'll, I won't be a dick to myself for five minutes and see how it feels. You know, let me give myself benefit of the doubt or grace for one day, one hour, one minute. Just try it. That is a key to opening up all the other possibilities that you're talking about. Like, be aware that, hey, if I can be nice to myself right now, maybe I can recognize that it's nice to be healthy and maybe I can make those connections. And even a further challenge, even a step further challenge would be what if we so deeply loved on and accepted all of the aspects that even the ones that are so mean and put us down, Mm -hmm. it's not that helpful, right? Like, it's not that Mm -hmm. helpful when we're putting ourselves down and shaming ourselves. But what if we even explored that voice with curiosity and we were like, what is this? What is the intention behind this voice? Right. And most people will find that it's almost like how hurt people hurt people, right? It's yeah. like your own inner hurt person is hurting you. And it's like, wow, 
this inner meaningful voice was actually trying to motivate me because this isn't what I'm right. doing isn't in my best interest and there's more for me to experience than what I am. And we start to like work with all of the things that are happening in our bodies and it, it becomes so empowering. And especially if you've been hard on yourself for many, many years, think of the relationship with yourself as like, it's like any relationship. If you were in a marriage and it was very toxic and it was verbally abusive and you made promises that you broke, you wouldn't have a lot of trust with that person. And mm-hmm. if you all of a sudden, somebody like your therapist or your you know dietitian was like, hey, you have to love this person or else it's not going to work. We're in such a you must love yourself culture. And it's like, whoa, that that's a lot. That doesn't feel natural. And so mm-hmm. For people who are struggling to feel that love and gentleness and compassion, what if it was just like a relationship that was healing and you're like, okay, I don't fully go into deep self-love just yet. We have some repair to do, but, I, but, but I'm here and I want to get to know you better and I want to try to surrender and listen to you and hear what you've been feeling and thinking and how disconnected that we've been. And sometimes that can be way so so much easier to approach from a place of... We've had a rough relationship, but I'm getting to know you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a master self-abuser. Yeah, uh, I get that. I we, get it. We've come from there. A lot of us have. A lot of people listening have heard that and felt I'm that. I'm sure. And uh, I, I just recently shared that I, I dropped a $7 latte. I, went, <laughs> I bought a really nice drink with a really nice cigar to go work at the park, and I dropped it. Boop. And my pattern, because I've been dealing with this stuff for months and years, my pattern switched on the spot. It became, you stupid mother. And it, that's what happened in mm-hmm. my instant response. But it, I was able to flip it and say, so that happened. And yeah. I recommend that to everybody. Change your stupid mother blank. It's to, awareness. To, so that happened. It's past. I can't change it. Yeah, but abusing when- myself now makes the next hour bad. But the next yeah. hour can be good. And there's so much power in just like what you're doing where that's where the mindfulness com- piece comes in that – when you have just awareness, that you don't have to control whatever, but you just have awareness of like what these thoughts are and the way that we're talking to ourselves and how our ego is working and what's happening. And we're like, wait a second. With awareness, that's where we take our power back. Yes. And, you know, I really want to thank you, especially for not not just all the genius you're sharing. There's so much, so much value here, mm-hmm. but also for going deep yourself with being willing to share that personal struggle, the difficulty you had thank you. that led to this because – until we talk honestly as people, until mm-hmm. we have that better conversation, it's not we're not going to really move forward. Absolutely. What do you want to listen? Leave the listener with today. What's your footstomp to share? Yeah, I think that health really isn't a uh, attempt to be perfect or follow someone else's plan, but it is a it is a opportunity to really get to know yourself deeper and build a relationship with yourself. And the, the, the relationship with yourself will be the longest relationship you ever have, <laughs> right? It'll be the longest you ever have. So get to know it and go deeper. And if something feels off and it feels like there's resistance, like keep exploring with curiosity and openness and just keep leaning into that, to that self-discovery and health can truly come from a inside out place. I literally could not have said it better because that was yours to say, and that's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on today. 
Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Thank we'll you. see you again, and uh, and I'm I'm threatening in advance to to potentially take a rain check for future discussions on this because this kind of be connectedness is very important. Mindfulness is so important. Yeah, thank you, Rob. And to listeners, thank you again. I appreciate your being here. I appreciate you thinking about these things, and I and go back over the recording and and deal with these things. Address it for yourself. Where can you apply these things in your life? And I will see you soon. Thanks for joining us on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois, the podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. For more information about Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, visit impactactual.com. And be sure to subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen so you'll never miss a show. We'll see you next time on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois.